So please, uh, if you have any further doubts, to be or not to be, <laughs> or half being, <laughs> three-quarter being, that uh, please uh, feel free to ask uh, if there's anything that was unclear in what I was saying or other associated questions or aspects of this, this theme, and please feel most welcome to, to raise them. I realize this is almost guaranteed to make your mind go very quiet, <laughs> at least for a little bit. Oh, so we have these two extremes of um, eternalism and nihilism. So with eternalism, I get this feeling that... Um, oh, with uh, eternalism, I get this uh, feeling that um, we can see that as being impermanent. And with nihilism, we can see it as being dependent, originated, because things are coming into being. So, But <laughs> there are, I've been around Buddhism for like... Uh, 30 years, and I have many views and opinions about this, especially emptiness. One I've heard in the last two weeks, which I find a bit disturbing, is that everything's empty, therefore we can partake within it. If everything is empty, mm -hmm. therefore we can partake in it, and we, so we don't need to restrict anything. I just want to, <laughs> what's your feeling on this uh, understanding? Well, um I'd say that's a uh, drastically wrong view. <laughs> well, you can partake uh, of whatever you like, but it's, even though uh, all things are empty, the, the way that nature works is still according to the laws of cause and effect. So um, the, uh, <coughs> you know, the, the, the bottle of, of uh, gin is empty. <laughs> the, the gin is empty. You know, the, the, the feeling of drinking it is empty. The sitting behind the car wheel is, is empty. Journey down the M25 is, is empty. <laughs> and then veering into the other cars, the collisions with the other cars is, is empty. And so, yeah, you can say all the perceptions uh, that go with, with uh, getting drunk and driving uh, are all empty. It's, it's true that they are just perceptions and, and, uh, and so forth. But also, you are... Um, uh, you're creating karma along the way. You're creating uh, effects uh, uh, in the just like I'm creating effects by the very choice of words that I'm using. That the words are empty; they're just noises. You know, if you happen to be able to understand English, they carry a particular meaning, but they're just noises. They're just you know, patterns of, of perception arising and passing away. But they have an effect. They they are they're not, I say outside of the laws of cause and effect and so that when people make those kind of statements then it's usually just a convenient way of justifying desire and aversion and and opinions and so that uh, uh, it's a, a kind of using a sort of buddhist excuse for um following self-centered habits in my not very humble opinion <laughs> but it's a it's a common enough um uh say uh, misunderstanding or misrepresenting of things. Because yeah, you, you, you can't just sort of uh, see things as, as empty when, you, when, when they're what you like and then and when they... Uh, or you can see them as things as real as when, when, you, uh, when you like them and then they're empty when you don't like them. Like in the second part, in the other part of the cycle. You know, let's say that um, 
you are um, in a way telling yourself a story in order to justify your own preferences and conditioning and so that um, if uh, if you are um, really recognizing emptiness and like say taking the Buddha's uh, the the Buddha's wisdom as an example say if the, you know the Buddha uh, uh, spoke about the the emptiness of all conditions you know the the uh, the body feelings perceptions mental formations consciousness these are all completely void of substance and, and hollow they're like a like a, a lump of foam or a mirage or a conjuring trick yeah he said they have form but they're completely void of substance but yet the Buddha lived in a way that was extraordinarily scrupulous and careful and he he lived uh, with a life of great kind of integrity and and harmlessness. So, rather than everything is empty, therefore, um, yeah, it's all it's all legal. And uh, if anybody has a problem with it, that's their issue. It's not mine. <laughs> that I'd say that's a, a a gross kind of wrong view. And if we take the Buddha as an example, everything is empty. Yeah, nothing has any intrinsic substance. Therefore, be extremely careful. <laughs> be very. Uh, be very uh, modest. Be you know, be honest and and gentle. You know, live uh, respectfully because also you can't assume. Uh, it'd be crazy to assume that every other being that you encounter is, is, has an equal experience of the emptiness of things. <laughs> Just like if you're if you're dr- drunk and driving and you crash into somebody, and they say oh, you know, all sankaras are empty. You know. <laughs> Well, dhammas are not self. You know what's the problem? <laughs> Asking for a knuckle sandwich, as they say, and quite rightly so. You know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a question there. If you could pass the microphone over. Thank you. You uh, when you when you said Ajahn, um, the what doesn't what doesn't conceive an existence when the when sees the cessation of the world and when does not conceive I think non-existence when one sees the arising of the world. Mm-hmm. I could you um, maybe uh, I would like to know how to interpret this concept of the world. Is it the internal world of the person, so does it mean the person basically, or is it also the outside world, the universe? Well, I'd, I'd say it's uh, it's both really. The um, uh, I think last week I was talking about what the, the world is in, the, in Buddhist psychology, and it's uh, the world of what we see, hear, and smell, taste, and touch. That's that's the world in terms of the, the Buddha's teaching. So that um, the... Uh, it's both internal in in terms of where uh, the world is our mind's representation of the world, but it's also the the things that we hear and, and smell and taste and touch that uh, are based upon the configurations of the, the things around us. So it's also um, uh, the, the another of the, the common misapprehension or mis, misperceptions about um, Buddhist teachings that say you know the uh, life is an illusion or the world is an illusion. It's important not to interpret that as saying that my, you know, the, the, all things of the world are just made up by my mind, or that there's no substrate that uh, 
that the our perceptions of the world are built upon because uh, uh, as the teachings say there are the four great elements yes there are the patterns of of how life and and the material world functions yes there are those patterns but how we experience them is completely down to our own conditioning but there is a a basis for that so um, if it was all just completely made up by our own mind if this was a dream you, ne- you never find um, any place where the Buddha says you know life is uh, life is a dream you know, because you know, a dream is really like a um, a baseless and imagined um, form but uh, at least in the Theravada uh, in the Pali Canon you don't have the Buddha using that kind of language so um, Sometimes people make that assumption, that, and it, and it's what you would call a, a, a solipsism, where like the entire world is just made up. There really is aren't any, there isn't anybody else. It's just me. I'm the only real being in the universe. Not everything else is just my dream or my imagination. That that's not uh, the teaching of the Buddha, and uh, and I would say that's also a, a radical misunderstanding. But there is uh, the laws of cause and effect. There are the patterns that the the elements of the world move in, and the way that that they relate with each other, that um, uh, our perception of the world is woven out of that material, if you like. That's the, that's the basis for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, if you could wait, wait for the microphone, then everyone can hear. Uh, my question... Well, I have loads of questions, really. <laughs> I want a back pocket with a little notebook that's full of Buddhist questions. I just, I just pick one at random, really. But, but one relates to what Ajahn Chah used to say that the, not necessarily the goal of Buddhism, but part of the goal of enlightenment or the practice of Buddhism was to die before you die, which I think was one of his kind of famous mm-hmm. uh, sayings that I've heard both emanate from him and from uh, Ajahn Sumedho very often. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of come to the conclusion over the years, not the conclusion necessarily, because obviously it's an ongoing practice. But sometimes it seems almost as if like Buddhism is more to do with dying than it is to do with living. And there's a very, not a famous line, but there's a line from a film uh, called Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> where at the end he comes to this conclusion that life, you either get busy living or you get busy dying. And he decided to choose life. And like I say, Buddhism sometimes to me seems like it's more to do with dying than to do with living. <coughs> Discuss. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> well, um, there also, uh, I think it was St. Teresa of Avila uh, was famous for saying, die before you die, so that when you die, you don't die. So for the non-English speakers... <laughs> Might be a little hard to follow, but uh, die before you die. So let go of everything before your body dies. Be ready to to drop everything to to recognize that you're not really the owner of things. To to die to let everything go before your body dies, so that when your body dies, you won't die. <laughs> so that your um, uh, you are not uh, tying your heart to that which is mortal and uh, and subject to to um, limitation. So when when Ajahn Chah would say um, "Die before you die," that's exactly what it's, it's uh, identical teaching. Even though he'd never even heard of Saint Teresa, Lumpur <laughs> uh, Sumedho had, but uh, that's exactly what Lumpur Chah would 
was meaning. It was like you die before you die, so that you are um, learning to recognize all the things that you're attached to, your physical mobility, or your ability, to, your 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 hearing, or your sight, or your ability to think, your family, your friends, your possessions, your career, your reputation, your crimes, even <laughs> your shortcomings. You know, sometimes our um, our problems and our, our difficulties are, are even more precious possessions than our our latest iPhone or the uh, or our, you know our offspring. It's like uh, <coughs> Gurdjieff used to say, uh, "You can take away anything from people apart from their suffering. They hang on to that until death." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to die before you die is to learn how to live properly. <laughs> But to me, that's how you learn how to live really well. You can really enjoy your life because you're not hanging on to anything. And uh, so that you are, um, uh, you're not tying your heart to, to hope and to fear and, and into things that are, are fragile and dependent. So you know, it's like you, you've let go of it already. So then you can really enjoy things. So uh, to continue the literary motif, William Blake, in one of the songs of innocence and experience, which I think is called Joy, is he that binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. He that kisseth a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Again, a little bit difficult for the not English as a first language types, <laughs> but uh, the language is a little bit convoluted, but so, and also it's a bit sort of gender specific, but so, he that binds himself to a joy. So when you take something that's joyful and you attach to it, like a beautiful sunset, wonderful day, perfect English summer, isn't this great? So you bind yourself to a joy, something that is, is delightful, beautiful, perfect. The more it's like, oh, this is so great, this is so fantastic, this is so wonderful. <gasps> oh, it's gone. <laughs> You're so busy owning it and, and in being in raptures about it, 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 it slips through your fingers. Doth the winged life destroy? So you destroy that, uh, that which is most precious and beautiful because you're trying to possess it and own it. So when you bind yourself to a joy, you destroy the, the winged life, like life on wings. The winged life. It gets pulled out of the sky by the fact that you're trying to, to own it. And then, uh, he that kisseth a joy as it flies. So kissing the joy as it flies. Um, so that there is, uh, there is enjoyment in life. Things, someone was just asking me about the attachment to their phone. That, uh, you know, that they love their phone. And that, uh, they, um, they're saying, is that okay? You know, is that attachment you know, in terms of, of loving your, your phone? I said, well, if you are ready to let your phone go, then you can really enjoy it. But if you're so, if you're appreciating it, but then you're worried about it getting scratched or someone stealing it or, or your um, find my iPhone application is faulty or someone's hacked it, <laughs> then uh, you're living in a state of tension. So, so Ajahn Chah used to say, he'd, he'd pick up a, a a cup like this and say, you know, this is a broken glass. If you can see that this glass is already broken, then when its day comes and the elements separate, you won't, you, you won't break with it. Your heart won't break with it. You'll recognize it's gone the way that it, 
it inevitably inevitably was going to. But if you don't realize this cup is broken, and you think it's your, you know, it's my cup, you know, my glass, then uh, when, it's, when it breaks, then your heart breaks too. So at first I didn't understand that teaching at all, and I used to think, I can't see the crack. I'm trying to get up, get up close and have a, you know, have, have a better look to, to see if there really was. Well, that's really interesting. It's because it's a broken glass, but it's still, it's not leaking. You know, you can't see it dripping or anything. But then I realized, oh, <laughs> it's a different teaching. So that you might think, well, that's a very sour outlook on life, saying, you know, it's all broken. You know, everything's broken. And that you're just uh, um, creating a negative veneer, like a, uh, a sour outlook on life, but if you if you really practice with that, and you and you apply that, then you realize, oh, this is learning how to kiss the joy as it flies. So then you appreciate the cup, and you're glad that it's there. But you know, at the moment it's cupping, <laughs> but one day its cupping will finish, and it will go to being part of Hertfordshire, or and uh, it'll the elements will separate out. And um, you know you appreciate it while it's present, and you in, in enjoy its uh, its usefulness. But uh, it's also that um, that the, its fleetingness, its impermanence, is not a, a fault. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. And then, as William Blake very insightfully pointed out, that that's how you enjoy life. You you kiss the joy as it flies, rather than try to to keep it. And. Uh, then it's, uh, it's remarkable how spacious life is and how free from anxiety. So you still take care of things, you're not irresponsible, but um, you, uh, you're able to uh, delight in, in things and uh, you can appreciate that, oh, today I've got this great phone, <laughs> this is a really good cup, it's not leaking, marvelous. So, so when you say to die before you die, that's, that's the purpose of it. If it's making you more depressed and you're using it in the wrong way, <laughs> then uh, uh, so it's always up to how we how we handle a particular teaching because no no teaching is intrinsically liberating just in the words that are there. It's always how you handle it. I think that's the uh, I think that's probably the crux of it. To be totally honest, I think as you quite rightly said, if it's depressing you, <laughs> then as Buddha said, I believe about picking up the teachings is like mm -hmm. a two-edged sword that you can you can pick it up incorrectly mm -hmm. i think that's the rub i think for me personally and maybe for others as well that seems to be where the risk is in picking up such a profound teaching mm -hmm. in the wrong way yeah like the the emptiness teaching that uh, paul was talking about that's like that can get you into a, a lot of trouble <laughs> <laughs> everything's empty officer <laughs> As you said, like the uh, so is this jail cell, right? <laughs> in, in you go. <laughs> so, any other questions, reflections? So, from from what you're saying, everything you is can, so. If you can speak into the microphone, then people can hear. Um, yeah. Is it better now? Better? Yes, that's good. Okay, so um, from from what you're saying and your attitude and everything looks so easy. However, 
me personally, I found it very, very challenging. Not further than this morning, I woke up and I was afraid of being on my own. So, you know, knowing so much theory, how come that we, it's so difficult to remember how, how, do, how can we reach this state of yours? How, <laughs> I just found it difficult. I just, it's just difficult for me. It's not just difficult for you. <laughs> Think, can we have a vote? <laughs> Hands up, please. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not laughing at you. Um, but uh, it's, it's very difficult for everybody. You know, that the, the Buddha said, it's easier for a, a soldier to conquer an army of a thousand people single-handed a thousand times over than it is to conquer yourself. So that gives you some idea of the odds. Like that, that's a million to one. <laughs> so, and, and the, you know, the Buddha was a soldier you know, before he was a monk. You know, he, he grew up in a military uh, environment and so he was a, a warrior noble. So he uses a lot of military examples. Um, but uh, I think it gives you a good picture that yeah this is not a small undertaking for anybody and um, you know I in, in this lifetime I started uh, at 21 living in a monastery I'm now 56 nearly 57 so I've been doing this for 35 more than 35 years without doing anything else so um, and even when you're doing, you're practicing meditation and reflecting on these these truths full time for for several decades, it's still a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it takes a, a huge amount of application to uh, understand human life, to to really know the mind, and to to train it to to uh, let go of the unwholesome and to cultivate to develop the wholesome. It's, it's a heck of a lot of work for everybody. But uh, it, in, in a sense, it just depends on what your priority is. And uh, if uh, being able to understand your mind and find a quality of genuine peace and clarity is the most important, is the only thing you're interested in, then whether you've, uh, uh, you know, how, how far you've got to go or how many years it's going to take you, in a sense, that's beside the point. You know, like okay, this is the most important. This is the, this is the thing that's most significant to me. Then it, it's in a sense uh, you're at least from my perspective. Okay, that's the most important thing. That's the only thing I'm really interested in. Therefore, whatever work it takes, I'll do it. And that, that's what's necessary. Therefore, um, I'll, I'll uh, make the effort to do that. But you should, it's like just recently I went to Mount Kailash in Tibet and to, to walk the circumambulation for, uh, around the mountain. And that's at about uh, 4,500, 5,500 meters. So 17, 18,000 feet plus. So the air is very thin. <laughs> and it took a, a huge, because, but because I, was, I knew I was going to be going there, I did a lot of preparation. So I, used, I was going out on long walks around this area through the wintertime and getting myself physically prepared because if I'm going to go to Mount Kailash I better get <laughs> better get this body prepared and get it ready because uh, otherwise it won't be uh, it'll be impossible to, to do the the um, 
the, the pilgrimage, the, the circumambulation, walking around the mountain. So uh, having uh, made that as a goal, okay, I want to go on this pilgrimage to Mount Kailash, so, okay, if I want to do that, that means I've got to take action. I've got to get out, I've got to walk, I've got to get fit. And during the winter time, I probably walked, I don't know, 300 miles, 400 miles um, over a three or four month period, just going out each day. Um, because uh, because of having that goal, then knowing, okay, this is this is what's necessary in order to to uh, arrive at that goal. So similarly, when you see this mind is completely out of control, <laughs> I'm you know uh, uh, I'm worried about this, and I'm threatened by that, and I'm excited by this, and I'm annoyed by that. <sighs> okay, now I really want to understand this. I really want to find a way of being at peace with this. Now, uh, if I really want this. To happen, if I really uh, see this as the priority, um, I'm going to have to apply the energy, attention, effort to 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 work at that and to 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 bring that about. So it takes a, a huge amount of patience. But if you see, but the main thing to me would be if you see that that's the priority, and then and then having a, having realized what the priority is, then just Patiently, steadily, um, putting forth the effort, and then when you lose it and you get distracted and carried off, okay, to recognize, okay, I really lost it there. <laughs> I got completely sidetracked. Okay, that was a sidetrack. Begin again, and then bring your and bring your mind back to that that uh, initiative and uh, refocus the attention and patiently uh, keep going. possible living in lay life or not really <laughs> well I, I i've never been a lay buddhist so i can't really talk about it from personal experience which might seem like a clever way of weaseling out of the question but i i, I was living in a monastery when i encountered I, I, I encountered buddhism in a monastery so i was well i was a lay buddhist for three weeks say before I became an Anagarika. So I don't have any experience of trying to hold down a job or be in a relationship or, or um, run a household uh, and practice Buddhism. But I'm abbot of this very large and complicated monastery. So I have 60 kids. So you, got, you guys you think you've got problems. So, so I have you know, 50 or 60 children that I'm responsible for. <laughs> that I have to keep housed and fed and to keep the bills paid and uh, uh, to look after everybody's welfare. So even though I've, I've never practiced as a lay Buddhist, I certainly have to, to work with a lot of the same issues uh, that uh, occur within you know, lay life. Um, if practicing Dhamma and realizing Dhamma was not possible for the lay community, we wouldn't have these Sunday afternoon talks. <laughs> We wouldn't have Amravati. Yeah, Amravati. One of the main reasons why Amravati was established by Lumpur Sumedho all those years ago was to create a, a venue for teaching and practice for the lay community. To make it e e easily accessible and to provide a variety of different resources. Because uh, the fact is, if you've got a body and, a, and you've got a mind, <laughs> you, can, uh, you can take the opportunity to awaken to the, the reality of things. That's the fact, I would say. And that uh, 
how you choose to to set up your life as a lay person or as a monastic um, you uh, you can make choices to make your life more complicated or less complicated. There are some monastics <laughs> mentioning no names whose lives are far more densely occupied and, and uh, emotionally charged than many of your, your of the lay people here. I say some of you probably got very quiet, controlled, steady, simple lives. Well, some of the, the brethren, sisterhood, uh, have got a lot of stuff going on. And so that um, it's not whether you have hair and, and earrings that makes a difference, um, but how you approach each day. Now, the Buddha did not set up the monastic order by accident. He was a monk. He chose to live as a monk. And he set up the monastic order in order to provide the so optimum conditions. So that monastic life is a sort of formalization of making life as simple as possible. So you don't have any romantic relationships, so you don't create emotional dependencies with other people. You don't have children, so you haven't got the responsibility of raising and educating another human being from early life. Um, you still have to eat, <laughs> you still need shelter, you still need clothing, so obviously we, we, uh, look, uh, we um, take care of those aspects but also when you when you take when you uh, take the full acceptance as a as a nun or as a monk you agree to the lowest standard of living that's the deal that you make and when you go forth you agree shelter is root of a tree yeah arms food whatever people whatever food people give you that's what you food you'll live on um rag robes is uh, uh, you know whatever's thrown away cloth that you can gather to make your clothing out of so you deliberately agree to, to a, a lower standard of living. So then, if it comes better than that, then that's extra. But you have no demands on it. You, know, you have no right to demand anything uh, more uh, fancy or, or comfortable. So uh, the, the monastic training is a, a sort of formalized simplicity. And the many precepts that we have are about, um, say, living in a way where you're living harmlessly, where you're living in an honest way, and you're um, uh, trying to be a person of as few needs as possible. So as a layperson, you can do all of that. <laughs> yeah, you, can, you can choose to live simply, you can choose to, to um, say, uh, take a, a, a very simple and basic standard of living. You can learn to be sort of grateful for whatever shows up. You can be harmless, you can be honest, uh, you can uh, live without a um, yeah without a, a extra emotional encumbrances. Yeah, yeah. Many things we can do, choices we can make to make life a lot more simple. So, in terms of, of pursuing dharma practice, I think whatever within the context of your own life and the and the commitments that you have, responsibilities that you have, just looking for ways to simplify, to unburden yourself, to to let there be more space in the day. And um, particularly to um, use the, 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 the teachings and the meditation teachings in particular to develop an ongoing mindfulness. So you're, you're training yourself to watch your body, watch your mind throughout the course of the day. Whether you're sitting in med formally in meditation or whether you are walking down the street, you're going to Tesco's, you're driving uh, yeah, yeah, along the road in a... Uh, in your car or on a bus, that you are 
bringing attention to what what you're feeling, what you're perceiving, what you're remembering, what your your mind is doing, and then uh, whether you happen to be uh, a layperson or a monastic, you know that then those activities and events of the day, the more that you, you realize, that the more that you bring attention to them, the more that you're mindful of that flow of experience of like and dislike, comfort discomfort, gain and loss, uh, approval disapproval, then. Uh, the more that you're able to be attuned to that, then the more that you are uh, able to to really be free and to be at ease with life. So when uh, you are um, using the meditation in an active way, like really applying that moment by moment, even difficult situations, uh, things that are very um, challenging, you find that you can sustain a like a, a balanced attitude towards. So it's it's not a matter of trying to find a you know, a life where no disturbing things happen. Try coming and living at Amravati. <laughs> Never a dull moment. <laughs> but uh, you are, uh, you, you, as I was saying in the talk, is you're, you're learning how to work with life rather than trying to find a, a quiet place where life isn't bothering you, because you'll never find it. Thank you very much. Time for one more, yeah. This, if you could pass the microphone over. Ajahn, um, in your talk you spoke about avoiding the two extremes of um, nihilism and eternalism. Mm -hmm. I just I was curious as to what happens when you actually achieve a nirvana. Is it does that mean like on Wikipedia it says <laughs> nirvana means the great oracle? Yeah, <laughs> nirvana means to blow out just like a candle. But does that that sort of infers the annihilation of self? And I wondered whether is that what actually happens when you achieve complete liberation? You just disappear in a puff of smoke or? Well, I'd say, what, what happened to the snake when the rope was recognized? Because the, the, you know, when the, the Buddha talks about um, enlightenment, you know, he, the, there's no place that he talks about, um, when he's asked many times, what happens to an enlightened being at the end of their life? And he would just, he'd say, um, you know, that, that question doesn't apply. And there's, um, again, in this little book here, <laughs> there's a whole chapter on um, the, uh, called Reappears Does Not Apply. And um, the, uh, uh, the Buddha was approached by this wanderer called Vachagota. And Vachagota um, asks him, you know, someone who's enlightened, uh, where do they reappear after death? And the Buddha says, reappears does not apply. And then Vajragata says, so do they not reappear? He says, does not reappear does not apply. Or do they both reappear and not reappear? And the Buddha said, that doesn't apply either. Well, well, do they neither reappear nor not reappear? And he says, that doesn't apply either. And then, Dear Vajragata, <laughs> I'll quote the uh, uh, 
the passage here. Vachagota, this very dear fellow, he ends up becoming an arahant, by the way, eventually, after many encounters. And he says, Here I am bewildered, Master Gotama. Here I am confused. The small degree of understanding which had come from our earlier conversations has now disappeared. Certainly you are bewildered, Vacha. Certainly you are confused. This Dhamma is deep, Vacha. It is hard to see and hard to understand. Peaceful, sublime, and beyond the scope of mere reasoning. Subtle, only to be experienced by the wise. It's difficult for those with other spiritual views who follow other teachings, other aims, and other teachers to understand. As this is so, I'll ask you some questions. Please answer them as you like. What do you think, Vacha? Suppose a fire was burning in front of us here. Would you know that? Would you know that there is a fire burning in front of me? I would, Master Gotama. And suppose someone were to ask you, Vacha, this fire, what's it burning dependent on? How would you reply? I'd say, this fire burning is burning dependent on grass and sticks. So, Vacha, if the fire burning in front of you were to go out, would you know that the fire that was burning has gone out? I would, Master Gotama. And suppose someone were to ask you, this fire that was in front of you and has now gone out, in which direction has it gone? North, south, east or west? Being asked thus, how would you answer? That doesn't apply, Master Gotama. The fire burnt dependent on fuel of grass and sticks. When the fuel is used up, it simply is reckoned as gone out, nibuto. Even so, Vacha, the Tathagata has abandoned any material form by, by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him, etc., etc., uh, having abandoned the five khandhas. So the term reappears does not apply. The term does not reappear does not apply. Both reappears and does not reappear does not apply. And the term neither reappears nor does not reappear does not apply. So the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feeling, perception, mental formations or consciousness. So, what he's saying is that it's the wrong question. <laughs> so when you say, where does an enlightened being go when they die, you're, you're assuming where, like you're, you're assuming that a being exists in, in one particular locality. Um, do they, assuming that a living, they're a, a single independent entity, uh, when, you're assuming that it happens over time, so you created location, you created identity, and you created time. And the, and the Buddha's point points to the fact that all of these are just constructs that, that the mind creates. And when those are let go of, then you know, there's, you know, there's, nothing, there's nothing you can say about that. And uh, in, the, in this same chapter, there's a wonderful teaching where he, uh, he's talking to... Um, uh, a wanderer called Upasiva, a young Brahmin actually called Upasiva. It is like a flame struck by a sudden gust of wind, said the Buddha. In a flash it has gone out and nothing more can be known about it. It's the same with a wise person freed from mental existence. In a flash they've gone out and nothing more can be known about them. Please explain this clearly to me, sir, said Upasiva. You, a wise man, know precisely the way these things work. Has the man disappeared? Does he simply not exist? Or is he in some state of perpetual well-being? When a person has gone out, then there is nothing by which you can measure him. That by which he can be talked about is no longer there. When all ways of being, all phenomena are removed, then all ways of description have gone too. 
So it's very frustrating for the thinking mind. Because, but, 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 but. There must be some kind of really super duper heaven that you just can't talk about. It's not, it's not legal to talk about, but you, know, you could tell me. Yeah. But uh, the, the Buddha is saying, uh, uh, it's a, you, words and concepts can't describe the actuality of it. So it's better to not say anything. So he, again, like with his teachings on Anatta, he was, he was happy to be misunderstood. Better to be misunderstood and to be taken as a, a nihilist than to create some kind of false picture. And to say, well, actually, an arahant, an enlightened being, they go to some really, really, really nice place. Like, really nice. He said, no, he wouldn't use that kind of language. Not to, not to, to, uh, to any of his, his uh, students or people from other religions. And that um, you do get a couple of little hints um, throughout the teachings, but not very much. So, actually, the, the, the passage that we finished this book in, the very last sutta quotation in the whole book, um, is from the Udana, and it's talking about um, uh, the Arahant um, Dabba Maliputta, one of the Buddha's disciples. He became an Arahant when he was seven years old, when his head was being shaved. I think when he was becoming a seven-year-old novice, Dabba the Malian became an Arahant at seven. See, started young. <laughs> And so he passed away, and somebody somebody asked the Buddha, um, "Well, what kind of destination has uh, Dabba Maliputta uh, reached?" And the Buddha said, "Just as the the born, the destination um, is not known of the gradual fading glow given off by the furnace heated iron as it struck with the smith's hammer. So there is no pointing to the born of those perfectly released, no pointing to the destination." of those perfectly released who have crossed the flood of bondage to sense desires and attained unshakable bliss. That's all you get. They have attained unshakable bliss. <laughs> That's as specific as it ever gets in the entire Pali canon. Just that one phrase. That's all you get. Okay, thank you, Ajahn. <laughs> so it's worth it, but you don't get any details. <laughs> They have. Um, I, I, I used to. It used to frustrate me a lot. I think, come on, why didn't the Buddha say something? I mean, it's the most important thing, really, and he doesn't talk about it. But then you realize that it was actually a tremendous strength. That he, it was actually a, a incredible wisdom on his part to say, no, no, leave leave it undescribed, because that's more accurate and more beneficial than creating some sort of uh, picture like. The sort of super duper heaven that 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 you can't fall down from because he's 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 respecting the fact that the mind's conception of a being, the mind's conception of time, the mind's conception of place, these are all just woven out of the 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 uh, the habits of a lifetime, and all that's dropped. Yeah. What what is the experience of reality when there's no time, no location, no identity? The words run out. So he said, okay, better to leave it with the, just the, with the words having run out and then encourage people to make the journey for themselves. Then it, it speaks for itself. And on that note, I think that's enough for today. So, Pari Nibuto. So, look forward to seeing uh, at least some of you next week. And uh, I think it's about... Uh, 
how to switch off the story-making factory. <laughs> I think that's what's on, the, on the, the menu for next week. So see you then. Take care.